I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives weeknights at 6 on Listener's Community Radio of Utah. Coming up, I do have another DIY creative on the show, Graham Brown of Sonder Immersive on his latest production, Hemingway and the Bird. Tickets available for this weekend as well as a performance in January. And folks, remember, give art this holiday season. Poet Nan Seymour and Jamie Butler of the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster will be here to invite you to write a verse or two for their epic community project, a collective praise poem called Irreplaceable. It's about the Great Salt Lake, and it's meant to swell to 1,700 lines to match the square mile size of a restored Great Salt Lake. And just like KRCL, we can't get there without you folks. So stick around to hear more, learn more, and get involved. And before we start, a reminder that the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and the Utah chapter of the Sierra Club are rallying along with their supporters at the Utah State Capitol in the Rotunda as we speak to say, don't let Utah make another monumental mistake in court. The state of Utah is readying a court fight over the restoration of Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. And we talked about it earlier in the week on the show with Dave Pacheco, Utah organizer for SUA. Bring your Bears Ears signs. Uh, We don't even have any more of the signs left. We've given them all out over the years. Um, Bring your voice, raise your voice. protest the spending of money, taxpayer money, to fight these monuments. All right, let's dig into tonight's guests and what they have to share with us. For the fourth year in a row, Wallet Hub has named Utah as the worst state in the nation for women's equality. Earlier this morning, I had the good fortune to hear my next guest respond to that, to speak about the findings of a new white paper about why we are ranked that way and what can be done. The report was commissioned by Zions Bank and co-authored by Dr. Susan Madsen and Dr. Greg Madsen, her husband. Dr. Susan Madsen, of course, is the founder of the Utah Women and Leadership Project and the inaugural Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership at Utah State University. Let's pass that microphone and find out more with Dr. Madsen, starting with the origins of the study. Well, actually, uh, Scott Anderson, who's the CEO of Zions Bank, he's the one that asked us to do this research. He, uh, you know, in August, a new ranking came out, which puts us again as the worst state in the nation for women's equality. And he was really interested, like, We keep getting on this list and other lists, right? But what does it really mean? I mean, what are they measuring? Is it some, is it important stuff that they're measuring? Is, you know, he he really, he commissioned the report and we died, he gave us six weeks and we dived right in to to look at that because I knew it was going to be an important report. And what we did actually was go deep and analyze and find the data sources, the original data sources of 17 key indicators that were in grouped in three segments and really got, went back and ran our own numbers. And I was really surprised. I, I was a little dismissive, as you mentioned. But after we ran all the data, our running the data really came pretty close to what they said as us at last in the nation. Well, it's interesting because they do another study that's about women's equality overall. And the top state in this one, in which Utah is last, 
is Nevada, but in their other, other study, Nevada is not doing as well uh, in their category. So it's a very refined look, and I wanted to break down these three categories at least, where there's it's kind of a 40-40-20. There's a score of 100, and these three categories have 40-40-20 in each of them. What are the three categories? So the the first is is the biggest category. I'll, there's t- So there's three categories, 17 indicators. The first one is workplace environment. So uh, let me see if I named that the exact right name. Yeah, workplace environment. I did. And that segment had 10. So that was our biggest segment, but but all of them equal to 40 points. And then the second one was education and health. That one only had three indicators, given a lot of points to each one. And that one was 40 points. And then there were, uh, in the last segment, it's political empowerment. And that one had four sec- four things, each worth five points. So as you mentioned, the whole thing is on a scale, you know, on, on 100 points. And bottom line, Utah has about 26, or not, tw- uh, let's see, 29 points. 29 points. And, <laughs> yeah, 29 <laughs> points. And the next worst uh, is Idaho. And that was 35 points. And then, you know, even five more points was the next one. Nevada was the top, uh, about 77 points on women's equality. The other one that you were talking about, Laura, was um, so on the women's equality were the bottom. On the worst, best and worst states for women, not equality, but just for women, Utah ranks 28th. But they're really measuring different things. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a little overlap, but not much. So there's some different components in their measurement system. All right. So you and your husband, by the way, who, as you mentioned this morning at a breakfast at Zion's Bank to talk about all this, recently got his PhD and helped you analyze the data. Um, yes. You really break it down for us. What, where are we following short when it comes to women's equality? And what does the data tell us? That's a great question. So in terms of the big chunk on workplace environment, the, the, there's 10 different things. Many of them that Utah did better were actually only worth maybe two points. <laughs> so we can, <laughs> the biggest one, the biggest point value, which, you know, is, is about 13 points is really the wage gap. And yeah. that's no surprise. Laura, we, we've talked about this for yes. many years. Yes. Um, and, and Utah does rank. Uh, it, we're usually not the worst. It depends on the ranking. But uh, usually we're either, you know, in the worst five states. Um, uh, what I said this morning was... Um, Wyoming is always worse. No matter what <laughs> thing we have, Wyoming is always worse than us on the wage gap. But that's a, you know, that's a huge segment in the workplace. There's other things as well. But let me just kind of put that put that out as as for that category. The second category is health and education, and each of those is worth over 13 points. So each of those given very weighted heavily. And one of those is very specific. And this is the one that we really lose the most points with is women in graduate programs. So they compare all the states and women graduate programs. There's only seven states that have more men 
than women getting in graduate programs. And Utah is one of those states, but we're by far have the biggest gap between men and women given the give getting their graduate degrees. So yeah, that's, and that's that speaks huge. to women's access, availability, their life choices. Um, like the rest of the country, there are more women getting their, you know, their, their bachelors than men, yeah. but then it switches significantly. Like we only have what, 13% of women, I think, if I'm recalling the data correct. For graduate programs. For graduate yeah. programs. Yep. 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 And that's where you get more education. You can earn more money. Yeah. And, and so education really is one of the foundational levels. The more education, the more money, the more flexibility, the more you're, for instance, in that workplace environment category, there's a couple of things that we rank, don't rank well. Well, there's many things we don't rank well on, but a couple that are really impacted by education. And that is um, people who earn over $100,000 a year. Women in Utah do not you know, earn nearly as much as men, in, they're not into that higher category. And that's influenced by education. And then women in leadership and men in leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, the more, you know, who has executive position and Utah has a big spread there too. Yeah. But when you get more education, especially graduate, you tend to make more money. You tend to be in management and leadership roles. So, so there's really some interplay, Laura, between or among, I should say, many of these elements. So yeah. the, the last one, Laura, in that middle category with those three big point value mm -hmm. things, I, I, I want to bring up because it's fascinating. And that is the disparity, the difference between men and women in Utah compared to the same thing in other states of their perception of the affordability of, you know, health care basically a doctor's visit and uh, it's their perception. And, and basically, you know, did you not go to the doctor because of worrying about affordability, your perception of that? And, and women in Utah, there's a significant spread between men and women uh, in, and this, these metrics really compared men and women. Well, so. plus also uh, the, uh, the female tendency to put themselves last in our yeah. family structures and what we're willing to yeah. spend money on. Absolutely. Okay. Then the last main, the last main check or section is, I think that one's fascinating. That's the one I've been thinking about so much and that's political empowerment. And some people are like, you know, what, why is that so important? Actually things change when women are in political power, have more voice in political political power. And so on that one, there's four different indicators. Each of them have five points. And in our top 10 recommendations, all four of these hit that. First one is um, basically we could go up five points easily. We want to rank better. We need to go if up five we, points. We, we can go up, you know, move our ranking by electing one of the two uh, women in one of the two Senate, U.S. Senate seats. And if we can, you know, right now we have four congressional seats with the House of Representatives at the U.S. level, getting two of those four seats to with women, upping our numbers by seven with women serving in the state legislature, the Senate and the House, and then changing. We have five what are called statewide executive offices, the governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, you know, things like that. One more over there. That even that alone would change 
you know, it's not going to take us to the top. And, and maybe that's not where we really want to go, because some of these rankings are maybe not things that, uh, do, do you remember, you were there this morning, where my comment about one of them is like, they look at the disparity between men and women on how much uh, they work, how many hours they work. Uh -huh. And I said, well, I don't know if that's the solution for Utah <laughs> women to say, hey, you just need to put more work hours more. in. Yeah. Uh, well, and it's, you know, okay, not to, uh, I'm going to risk insulting you, lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? So it's yeah. how, what we do with this data, and you're using this Wallet Hub study, the 2021 Best and Worst States for Women's Equality, again, Utah ranking last. To, to motivate a conversation at the policy level, at um, you know the hiring level, et cetera. And we'll put a link in the show notes to this full study. I want to get to the, um, the recommendations and kind of run mm -hmm. through those. But when it comes to pay, there was some really interesting data that you pulled out that in Utah, the average pay for women full-time is $39,784 compared to $57,117 for men. And one of the recommendations is at least raise the minimum wage by $2, which I find interesting recommendation given what's going on with our labor situation during the pandemic. That That is. And, and by the way, I mean, we have to look at the data sources are usually a year or two behind. Yeah. So, so you know, as my husband would say, when he was really running the numbers and looking at this, he's like, you know, in Utah, oh my gosh, I mean, Wages have gone up, but housing has gone up and all kinds of things have changed. So, so you know how research lags a little bit. Uh, so, so we have to just take those recommendations. And that was one thing that we could actually run numbers on. Like if we, if we could get this percentage of people and there's more um, the percentage when you look at the difference between men and women, women typically fall in those jobs uh, more than men in those low income jobs, right? Those yeah. minimum wage. So if we could just even shift up right now, the minimum wage in Utah is $7.25. I don't know how many people really pay that anymore. I'm sure there's some, uh, but if we could at least lift up and that's just one of many things we would have to do to really, uh, you know, take care of our wage gap. But we wanted to give at least something concrete that we could do. Well, Dr. Madsen, we've spoken about a couple of your top 10 recommendations for Utah decision makers. Elect a woman for one of the two seats in the U.S. Senate. Elect women for two of four seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Also, uh, get more women in the state house and in statewide office. I really wanted to focus on this one because it hits home for me. Shrink the disparity in math scores by one point. Oh. When I was in eighth grade, doing great on math. I hit geometry, hit a wall, and I never went back to it. And I'm thinking about that that thing in my head that then closed off options education-wise and also uh, employment and career-wise. And knowing numbers, financial literacy, one of the things we talked about at the table I sat at, seems to be a huge component of shifting, of moving the needle on these on these uh, indicators. Absolutely. And when, when you look nationally, and, and by the way, in other countries, in some other countries, there is no difference between boys and girls in math scores. Um, yet in the United States, there is. And Utah, I can't remember, you have the report in front of you. It's, it's, we weren't the worst, but we were in the like 43rd comes to mind as states in that disparity. And that's just not, 
I mean, other countries can do it. Other states can do it. We can shrink that gap. But what it tells us, and Laura, I don't have the data to back this up, but I know the (laughs) research in general. What that tells us is that those social norms are stronger here in Utah. Those social norms that that um, boys are better than math, those assumptions that girls are better at this, that boys are better at this, that maybe girls, because they're going to be moms, don't need to to have math. That wouldn't be a point. You know, they may not be engineers or whatever. Those strong, and and, oh my gosh, is there evidence when messages come, and even as adults, when there's a competition, when there's something, if women are reminded in any subtle way even, that maybe women aren't as good in math as men or something else, they actually physically, mentally do worse on the tests that they take immediately after they're told that. Oh, yeah. And I had incredible happening. test stress, too. <laughs> oh, have you? And by the way, Laura, I'm just going to pitch in here because I was always good at math and geometry kicked my butt. <laughs> I'm <laughs> telling you. Grade. Yes. I just didn't get it, but I, I did keep doing algebra. I, I, algebra made more sense to me than geometry. <laughs> so, so. I'm glad to know someone else experiences <laughs> that same. And you know, I've uh, I, I digress. I, I've done okay, not not being great at geometry. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're okay, Laura. You have too. There we go. So, oh, that that one is important, and I know. I, I, I'm just hoping, and I know the the Utah State Board of Education, you know, is aware of this. But I'm hoping that we can find some good solutions. I'm not an expert on the math one. Um, especially geometry, like I said, but, um, but I hope we have some solutions that we can do pilot tests and different things to really shrink that gap. After because, school tutoring. Yeah, there you go. But it, it, it does impact women's, girls, young women and their aspirations to go into those fields. And we know by like, I, I can't remember the research, seventh, eighth grade, Girls write grade. themselves out of those yep. STEM fields already. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and the final uh, recommendation, we've covered most of the others that I really want to talk about, is adding a 1,000 additional women-owned businesses in Utah. Huge. huge. That is huge. And that sounds like a lot, but there's a lot of businesses in Utah. And many women um, are starting businesses. I mean, Utah has has some things that are really, you know, we're really known for starting businesses. And I'll tell you that we have some resources and centers now that we didn't even have a number of years ago, more and more that are really interested in helping women with entrepreneurships. The Women's Business Center of Utah, they've been around for a while, but new funding, new, everything they do is free. I mean, they give consulting. I mean, not everything is free. Some there's some minimal fees and training and stuff. But generally, they people can call and set up times with them, and they can get consulting. Um, but also, there's some centers now and specific initiatives at universities to help women specifically, SBDC, different things like that. There's some real help out there. So if women want to start, you've been thinking about starting a business. Just know, don't just do it from the gut. Those often fail, but know that there really are resources out there that you can get the help that you need. You can go through training that's great, that uh, that's minimal charged, or they have scholarships, so they, they won't turn people away. 
Um, and and we have a we have a great uh, entrepreneurship center at Utah State University that really has some some efforts specifically with uh, women that partners with the Utah Women or not the Utah Women the Women's Business Centers of Utah. So so a, a thousand you know we have millions of people we have millions you know in the state of Utah. So so a thousand uh, we're just great in Utah with starting businesses, but many many more men start businesses than women. So, so this report is now out in the wild, as it were, women's equality in Utah, why Utah is ranked as the worst state and what can be done. We'll put a link in the show notes. But what is the path forward here? You know, Scott Anderson over at Zions Bank commissions this report. People pay attention when he does things like that. (laughs) And we've got the general session of the legislature coming up in January. What do you know or hope will now happen? Well, um, especially when we look at public policy, we've actually have other white papers where I've had, I've hired policy analysts to go through and look at every other state, like on the wage gap. We've done one on the wage gap, one on leave policies, have one coming out soon on childcare. We have looked at what every other state has done put a big, long, 100-page appendices in there, and then what recommendations do we have? We have have really a history of our legislature shutting down any legislation that seems at all focused on women or different things. There's a few things that have started to get through. I do see I'm really hopeful on on a couple of things around child care this session. But and I know one bill is going up from on uh, pregnancy leave and some different things. I think COVID has shaken us up enough um, to say, well, maybe this is important. And our talent shortage, right? We have such a talent shortage that maybe it is not just as we've been thinking as citizens and residents of Utah, not just a private issue that families should just take care of. Maybe we actually need to do something to help. It's not all about public policy, I have to say. Public policy is a key, but we really need to be working with business leaders. I I know the governor's office of of economic opportunity, um, um, EDC, Utah, other groups are just really wanting to engage in these conversations. I think we're going to see some movement. And hopefully many of them were in the room this morning. Many of these key people were in the room. So with this as a, as a guide for at least or some things to consider along with other research and um, and uh, men and women, I, I love to see a men in the room this morning. I think more men are standing up. I mean, it's an economic imperative moving forward to the state of Utah, right? Yeah. One of the observations that I made at our table was that, you know, in terms of how America spends its foreign aid, we realize and recognize investing in women in the developing world um, has a greater turn, greater return for women and girls. Yet we struggle with that here at home because it comes up against our gender norms, our nuclear family. And here in Utah, gender norms and nuclear family, that's, you know, an overriding cultural imperative. So what do you what do you what's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, I'm a proponent of of families and all of that. Um, But we and and I think those are important. I don't think that that it's either or I think there's an and in there that can be really powerful in the state of Utah. I really do think um, that we can do 
remarkable things in the state if we put enough enough emphasis in there and and governor and and our governor and lieutenant governor are, are interested you know in in these issues as well more than than people in the past i think we're really at a stage that we can do more there are strong social norms and you know what's interesting is sometimes those norms are really not things that make sense anymore. We're just used to it because our grandparents did it one way, our parents, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, even still, I run into people that say, well, women don't even need a bachelor's degree. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, all women, you know, (laughs) we hope everybody, whether you work for pay or work in the home, work in the home is a lot of work, right? And, but you, you probably heard me say at the end, of that event this morning, I really, my hope is that women and girls will understand all of their choices and that we will learn to respect or we will do better at respecting their choices. So we don't need to shun women that stay home full time and not think um, they're important, but can't can't we do better all of us in providing access and opportunities to men and women more equally, to girls and boys and raising their aspirations. It's a lot of work, but I'm seeing movement in Utah and I'm really optimistic about the future. Um, There is work to do, substantial. Dr. Madsen, thank you so much for your time. I'm always, always happy to talk to you about the work that you do with the Utah Women in Leadership Project. Thanks so much. To mention, if people are interested in finding the report, um, our website generally is utwomen.org, and you can go over to the research tab and white papers and be able to find that report. And And we just launched this morning um, a notice of, of four more events coming in January and February. Uh, uh, one of one will be a whole symposium on childcare, um, including CEOs and different things. Another one, this is the one I wanted, I won't tell you about all four, but the other one, um, I actually have some global experts on salary negotiation for women. Two, one from the Harvard Business School, another one from the Harvard uh, Kennedy School, and another uh, person that's published in Harvard Business Review. All of them will join me for a really interesting, like what's the latest research and cutting edge ba- best practices in salary negotiation for women. Doesn't that sound great? It does. I need some of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much again for your time. And we'll put a link in the show notes and uh, hopefully folks will avail themselves of these great resources you're creating in our community. Thanks so much, Laura. Dr. Susan Madsen of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. This is a fascinating study and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can read it yourself, but also get links to those events that Dr. Madsen talked about. I'm Laura Jones and you're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. With 75,000 folks tuning into KRCL each week, that's a whole lot of heart. We're grateful for all of you. Amplify your love for KRCL and help us ring in the new year with a year-end gift at krcl.org. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. I'm Laura Jones and you're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9.
And in our continuing focus on shopping local and supporting DIY creatives this holiday season, how about an art experience unlike no other? To find out more, we're going to pass the microphone to a man and his uh, his is it a theater company, a dance company? Anyway, you may be familiar with something called the Chocolatier, where you moved around the performance. This time, you're going to go to Cuba and a cafe for Hemingway and the Bird. Hello, Graham Brown. How are you? Great. How are, how are you? Doing well. So tell me about this mashup, because you're working with City Bird Cafe, Love Liberty and her folks over there. And it is a beautiful kind of old cafe in the basement of the city and county building. And you're staging Hemingway and the Bird there. Yes, yes. And L- Liberty says hello. Oh, thank you. Back uh, right back to her. Yeah. So it, um, the yeah, so the show is a uh, dinner experience. It's also an immersive theater experience in which the show happens all around you and correlates with the meal. So um, as you, you know, enter and get your drinks and find your seat, you may uh, run into Ernest Hemingway. You may run into Martha Gellhorn, who is his um, third wife. Um, you may run into um, characters from the old man and the sea as the show moves through the courses of the meal, um, as they move together through one another, um, it goes back and forth between the rocky life and relationship that um, Hemingway had with Martha Gellhorn and with the uh, story of the old man and the sea. Wow. I I think I read something on your website about how this was created in intense collaboration with the cast. So how do you develop this unique performance? Yeah, it it is always uh, very, very collaborative with the artists. We um, so this one in particular. Well, this one in particular actually began years ago um, with a with a small commission that I had. And we got started with this Hemingway idea and it's gone through many different variations. to the point at which it's hard to remember who wrote which scene. <laughs> um, it's hard to kind of really clearly identify like this choreography was, you know, this or that person, which is really my favorite way of creating. So uh, I'm the overall vision keeper of the work and whatnot. Um, but it, it, in fact, actually, this is a good COVID story. We started rehearsing this version of the show a few, several months ago, and my son tested positive for COVID. So I didn't even go to the rehearsal. Like I told the performers what we were working on and they were very familiar with it and they built most of the content. And then I showed up when, you know, we were done quarantining and then went from there. Wow. So that's a lot of trust going on and a lot of trust from the audience as they participate in such a unique way. As I said in your intro, the Chocolatier, I think, was the first experience I uh, had with Sonder Immersive. So tell me what it is you're trying to to create or evolve, pandemic or no, with these yeah, yeah, types yeah. of performances. Uh, great. Uh, pandemic or no. We are trying what I'm interested in. Well, my background is in dance. And I um, have all have I am sort of um, within that world of creating physical performance and have grown to be very interested in theater in its capacity for storytelling. And the third component of that is the the immersive aspect, which is, I believe, I believe it's um, well, I find it the most exciting sort of format for performance in which the audience is not in a passive state. We experience so much passive 
entertainment in our lives. And I think we, I think there's a depth that comes from dwelling within an experience. And I think we're seeing that throughout artistic genres that this type of, um, uh, this type of immersing people within things is catching on, I think. Yeah. Well, it's like the in real life version of the avatar and a video game, which is the digital version of the in real life version. It gets very meta, I think, Graham. Uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in this digital world that we live in, I think people crave uh, real experiences. Yes. And I've always wanted to get up in the middle of a performance and talk back or interact with the cast. And so this feels like a real nice evolution. Not nice, exciting, fun, unpredict yeah. unpredictable. Yeah, I think so. And it, it's really, um, I think it's a, it, it can be a transformative experience. It's a thing that uh, as, as an audience member, there's a buzzing. There's often like a day or two later, you're still kind of chewing on it. You know? Like, did that happen? Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's what happened for me when I got started with this work is I started seeing shows like this in New York and had that experience and realized that that was what I, that's what I had been trying to do within my creative work and just didn't have that reference point, you know. Well, you have two performances of Hemingway and the Bird, one coming up this weekend, December 4th. Don't know if their tickets are left. And then again, January 15th. So what's the website we can direct folks to to check it out and get tickets? So it's sonderimmersive.com, S-O-N-D-E-R, immersive.com. And there are a handful of tickets left for this Saturday. And yeah, there's room for this for January Thank you well. so. Thank you so much for giving us a sneak peek into your creative process, Graham. Yeah, thank you for having me. Graham Brown of Sonder Immersive. Check tonight's show notes for a link and consider giving art from local artists and performance groups here in Utah like Sonder Immersive this holiday season. When we come back, an epic community praise poem for the Great Salt Lake. And to get us from here to there, how about Palace of the Brine? It's Pixies on KRCL 90.9.
Support for KRCL comes from Live Nation, announcing Foo Fighters, coming to USANA Amphitheater on August 8, 2022. Tickets on sale now. Details at Ticketmaster.com. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out at 8, The Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1 a.m., and Illustrated Blues at 3 a.m. Our entire programming lineup is online at krcl.org, and if you click the Programming tab, you'll also be able to listen on demand to the last two weeks of any show, including Radioactive. For the rest of the hour now... We turn to the Great Salt Lake. You may have heard our recent coverage of what's going on in the Great Salt Lake with a man who circumnavigated it in a handmade kayak. Well, now we're going to mash up poetry and science and pass the microphone to find out what's going on with this unique collaboration as the lake continues to shrink, evaporate before our eyes. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Nan, go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners. Hi, I'm Nan Seymour. I use pronouns she and her, and I'm the founder of River Writing, which is a community of folks who get together um, to write generatively and do it in community. And um, it's grown over the years kind of poetically centered. We use poetry as prompts. We use poetry to um, bring our attention to things. And maybe that's the connection between Uh, that community, our community, and um, how we are responding to this current imperiled ecosystem and the crisis around the lake, Um, trying to show up with our pens to be witnesses. And so some of the things I brought to share are invitations. Uh, We're trying to broaden that invitation and bring as many people in as possible um, to witness what's going on. Art is always a great window into the issues of our times. And Jamie Butler, introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi there, I'm Jamie Butler. I am the coordinator of Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. And I have spent my 22 year career studying the science of Great Salt Lake. I, in particular, really, really, really love brine shrimp and pelicans, and I don't tend to ever shut up about either of those. (laughs) Um, But in my role at Westminster, uh, we try to connect people to the lake through research and education. So we have all these amazing science students that uh, come to me and say, hey, what can I do? And uh, we put them to work studying Great Salt Lake. And then we get to form these wonderful collaborations with people like River Riding and Man and um, other local organizations. So you also are co-author with Bonnie Baxter on Great Salt Lake Biology, a terminal lake in a time of change. And you've also got Salty Sirens, a book to teach any age of kid about the Great Salt Lake. We're going to get into all of that. But Nan, can you kind of pull together um, these prompts and tell us where we're headed with this? Mm. So the primary project we wanted to invite uh, listeners to is a praise poem um, called Irreplaceable. And the word irreplaceable is actually um, something that I read on a sign at Farmington Bay Refuge describes the lake as as an irreplaceable island of hope for migratory birds. And that word just kept ringing in my ears. It seems like such a true thing to say of this completely unique ecosystem. Um, so the, the poem's entitled Irreplaceable, and the method of the poem is I've been asking folks just to share details, um, specific 
details, things they love about the lake, things they would miss, maybe little scenes, little experiences um, that happen to them at the lake. And I've, I've shared the invitation with kind of four different groups thus far. And uh, I just take the lines, they don't need to be given poetically. So there's a, a way to collect these on my website, really easy. So you can get on there and see where the poem is. It's already uh, 237 lines. We're going for at least, at least 1700 lines in this poem um, because we want the size of the poem to reflect a healthy, uh, restored Great Salt Lake. And one of the numbers, Jamie helped me with this because there are more than one number, but one number that's been um, used to, to state the healthy size of the lake would be 1,700 square miles, and um, but maybe up to 2,100 square miles. So we're open to the poem getting longer, flowing into that bigger body. Um, really happy if it goes to 2,100, but I'm personally committed to collecting 1,700 lines of praise. Uh, for Great Salt Lake, um, just as kind of a collective prayer to um, echo what the lake will be when it's restored, if we do the right things. And um, and so, yeah, there's already 105 or 107 different voices. I've been able to bring this invitation to different groups who just deliver up their details and, you know, colors, sights, sounds, uh, landforms, life forms, anything you love, anything you would care about if it was gone, all those things belong in the poem. And um, I'm just kind of working in batches. So there's four different um, sections. And as lines come in, I'll create new sections. And I, I'd we'd love to have every voice in the poem, all kinds of different people who are in relation for the lake, with the lake. And, and maybe you just noticed, maybe you just noticed that this matters a lot and it's new and that's an important voice too. Um, so you could write something that just started, I just found out, or I just learned, or I went to the lake for the first time. Maybe that happened this, uh, you know, just this, this conversation has brought it to your attention. Great. Your voice also belongs in the poem. So that's one of our main projects. There's a lot of other things to say, poems I could share, but I want to invite everyone to, uh, including you, Lara, okay. to drop your details in um, <laughs> and let's get them in. We'll, we can have, if enough uh, details came in from this show, we could have a, a special a segment that was just like KRCL listeners from this day. And here's your collective witness. I like so I'd that. Lo I'd love to create that. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's put that out there. All right, folks. So we're talking with Nan Seymour and Jamie Butler about this project about the Great Salt Lake. And what, what kind of poem are you calling this again? It's a, it's a very yeah. specific type. A collective prayer of praise. I love it. it can you give us a little taste, a little passage or two? Oh, I'd love to do that. I can read you, um, this last segment that I just put up actually is a result of uh, 16 or 17 folks. Jamie and I uh, got to go out to Antelope Island and we were at um, Lady Finger Point outside and we, this was just a couple of weeks ago and we invited some writing and then people um, shared who were actually there on the island writing with us, including Jamie actually. Um, so this is, and here's the thing too, this is important to say, you don't need to identify as a writer to do this. You just need to be someone who notices and someone who cares. And really um, those voices, just anything that's true and detailed is super valuable. And, um, and I have to tell you, it kind of took me out of my comfort zone because mm -hmm. I'm used to writing like academic, you know, we have that children's book, but like really writing like hard academic type papers, it was, it took me out of my comfort zone. I didn't quite know where I was. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's new for a lot of folks. And it's also just like a super friendly process. You can't do this wrong. It's just about being honest. And 
Um, here, I'll just read, I'll read a few um, stanzas from the very end of the poem as it stands now. These are like lines uh, 200 to 237 or something. And you'll get an idea of the specificity of what people are offering. Praise the place of fourth grade field trips. Praise a cut knee on big rocks and the first place I saw a bison. Praise the place we kissed under the stars. Praise children playing in the sand and even the smell of them after. It began with the light on the clouds, on the water, on the peaks. It began on their little faces. It began on the lake's edge. Bring me to the halite crystal edge, to the edge of the microbialite, the edge of pickleweed, to the edge of my understanding. Bring me to the edge of insight, the edge of plight realized, the edge of what lies ahead, to the edge of my seat. Bring me to the edge of what's here, bring me to the mirror, bring water, bring water, bring the mirror and show me what I am. That's uh, just the last section. So the, these are folks that just want to reflect on the Great Salt Lake. And so if you're listening, Nana's inviting you, Jamie, inviting you to participate in this poem, a collective community prayer for the lake, which is evaporating and uh, shrinking before our very eyes. And I love that line about the fourth grade field trips because I'm remembering the ones in junior high with Mr. Isaacs, I think it was, where we went to different places around the state. And one of them was the Great Salt Lake. And uh, I, it's just imprinted on my brain. So Jamie, you give know, us some more science about the lake, would you? Uh, yeah. Where are we? What, <laughs> what is the peril here? Well, okay. So um, Great Salt Lake is one of, you know, the most important salt lakes in the entire world. It's um, pretty enormous and actually is, you know, pretty healthy. It, we've been able to have this kind of sustainable kind of balance between humans and the lake. And that's not to say the lake isn't impacted, but it, it you know, is a sustaining um, ecosystem. And uh, over the last um 150 years, we've taken a lot of water and prevented it from getting to Great Salt Lake. So we've diverted fresh water from um, getting into the Great Salt Lake. And what that does is it um, makes it saltier. So every time that that less water gets in there, the salts concentrate and it makes the water saltier. And, you know, the cool thing about Great Salt Lake is um, while, you know, the major parts of it are very salty, five or 10 times saltier than the ocean, it, it's everywhere from um, fresh water in the 22,000 square mile watershed that's um, scouring all of the creek beds and then, you know, concentrating minerals into this terminal basin. So um, it's freshwater to hypersaline and everything in between. And so it's really very diverse. And that means that um, there's tons of different species of birds, 338 species of birds that comes to feed on all of those different um, macroinvertebrates, all of the bugs, the, the dreaded stingy bugs that make us itchy and get squished between our flip-flops and maybe fly up our nose. Those dreaded bugs feed lots and lots of um, birds. And it's, you know, really like hemispherically important. Many of those birds um, have nowhere else to go and have kind of concentrated here at Great Salt Lake at our um, ecosystem right next to a metropolitan area. It's a, a very uh, unique situation to have 3 million people living right along the shores with those 10 million birds um, 
and we've been pretty lucky, uh, but this year we, um, because of these water diversions and then an extended drought, um, we hit the very lowest lake levels that we've ever seen since we've recorded um, since 1847. And, um, we don't, we didn't only just hit that historic low, we hit that historic low from July 23rd until um, October 16th, October 18th. So every day in that period, the lake level kept getting lower and lower and lower. And um, what's the number? How low did we get? Yeah, so we hit 4190.2 on October 18th of 2021. And that's the historic low um, forever and always. Um, and that's 4190.2 what? Baker feet, feet? Of surface elevation. Okay. So, um, the, yeah, uh, so that's the surface elevation of the lake. Okay, so surface elevation. You're hoping yeah. to get it up to 1,700 square miles. How much more, you know, how much more would we have to add to get it there? How far down are we in that kind of comparison? Can you give us so, an idea? Well, so, you know, right now, we are about 11 feet lower in surface elevation than we should be. We should really be, the average surface elevation is about 4,200 uh, feet above sea level. So we want, you know, that that would be an average lake level. I mean, that's not even talking about an unimpacted lake if humans didn't even live here. And I don't think that's realistic, right? We all live along the shores and we need food and we need, you know, we rely on the industries around the lake and we have cars that we drive. So we're all part of this like system. So, I mean, that would, uh, it's not realistic to go up to that, you know, unimpacted lake level, I don't think. So we're talking about the Great Salt Lake, and we're visiting with two women working on a community poetry project to draw attention to it. Nan, I wanted to come back to your poetry and have you share some more, whether it's from the lines for this uh, collective praise poem or one of your own compositions. But art as a window into this conversation, because I think, you know, like Jamie said, three million of us living on or around or near this lake, but we really don't think about it unless we're flying out of here or we smell it or we get that lake effect. Not many of us do time on the lake, so to speak. So right. um, how is poetry getting us into it? Well, it's interesting. Um, I have a poem I'd love to share, but I'll first just reflect on this, uh, doing time with or being with the lake. I think it's time for us to change our perception of that. Like for most people listening to this every night, you sleep in the lake's bed. You sleep in the, you know, the bed of Lake Bonneville. And I just started thinking and talking a little more like that. Like Every day I'm drinking water made from the snow that she makes. Um, so even if you don't go out there, you're in relationship with this lake. Um, you, you know, occasionally are catching a glimpse of a bird overhead who's utterly dependent on the lake, um, as we all are. And I think, I think the harrowing fact that's worth mentioning uh, that came up this summer and maybe just hadn't been said so clearly before is the lake dries. Um, we will live not along the shore of a lake, but we'll live on the rim of a great dust bowl. Um, and it will be terrible. It will be terrible. And so I don't like to be a fear-based person, but I'll tell you, I am afraid of that. I am. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm trying to grow my love and grow my witness and, um, and invite others to do so. And, and poetry is one way to do that. And going there is another way to do that. Um, but this little poem, Laura, actually I'll bring because we were in fourth grade together a really long time ago. And this actually references fourth grade um, 
in a way that history used to be taught that maybe it's not taught anymore, but it's kind of based in that. Uh, I'm thinking of Mrs. Brazier right now. <laughs> so this is called A Miracle is Due. And this is just about our relationship. Maybe our, you know, folks who live here, uh, who are descendants of colonizers like I am, pioneer descendants. This is about, you know, one of the ways I relate to the lake. It's called A Miracle is Due. Fourth grade in Utah public school. I'm 10 and tired of pioneers already, but I'm listening because today in history, we're studying a miracle. How crickets once devoured our crops, how we pled until God sent seabirds who rolled in like clouds, how without them, we'd had met our end. It was the first pioneering spring and we thought those tender shoots meant survival. We were oblivious to what go shoot people knew how crickets can be caught and dried, ground into flour, made into cakes. Instead, we saw a swarm and thought ourselves gone. I'd known seagulls from the playground, crying and diving for crusts. But after that lesson, I saw each of them anew, agent of miracle, more agile than angel. At recess, I looked up as if to cry back to the flash of wings, we owe you, now I know, we owe you. There was still farmland then, the freeway, merely planned. And yet in 40 years, I'd become part of the swarm, desiccating the lake, swift and insatiable. It's past time to be reciprocal. We owe them, and we know we owe a miracle. Woo, fourth grade. What was it? Cottonwood Elementary. Go Condors. (laughs) We did have a lot of seagulls in our playground. We did. We did. And so many and so many on the lake. So, Mm -hmm. folks, in wrapping up our conversation here with Utah poet Nan Seymour and Jamie Butler of the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster, there is an invitation to you to participate in this communal poem, praise poem. Nan, tell folks about it one more time as we wrap this up. Yeah. So what we're looking for is just your specific witness. It can be any detail, um, anything you love about the lake, something you noticed, Something you would miss if it was gone is a great way to think about it. And maybe you have a lot of those things and we'd love your whole list. Anything you send me, uh, which you can access uh, the link on my website really easily, uh, just drop it in there, drop it in the comments at the bottom of the existing poem and I'll work it into the next batch and those details will show up as a collective witness, a collective prayer of praise. You don't need to make it poetic, no big deal. Just write something honest and something specific. Um, any specific detail will be really meaningful. And Jamie, for folks that want to get a hold of your kids' book, Salty Sirens or Great Salt Lake Biology, A Terminal Lake in a Time of Change, how can they engage with you at the Great Salt Lake Institute? Hook up with us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Um, I, you can find us on our website at um greatsaltlakeinstitute.org. Uh, great um, if you want a kid's book about the Great Salt Lake Monster or nerdy things like uh, mm-hmm. brine shrimp scarves and <laughs> brine shrimp magnets or even brine shrimp finger puppets, you can go to GSL Salty Sirens um, on Etsy and find us there. And, and, you know, we're very responsive via email. Well, I totally want a brine shrimp finger puppet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so ordering that today. If I'm got, totally ordering that today. You know, we've got anything out of this conversation, folks. It's how to or, order brine shrimp finger yeah. puppet. Right? And, and you know, those, those actually come from um, puppets in the city. So it's hmm. a fun, like, local organization that cool. makes, does uh, 
puppeteering. Oh, now I've got to interview them. But thank thank you to the (laughs) two of you for being on the show. And folks, get going with your lines for a collective praise poem called Irreplaceable. we got to get to 1,700 lines at least, which would match the square mile size of a restored Great Salt Lake. And I invite both of you to come back when you're ready to uh, create that experience on Radioactive, okay? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Utah poet Nan Seymour and Jamie Butler of the Great Salt Lake Institute. And you do got to check out the show notes because the post, the picture... (laughs) Jamie pulled out the brine shrimp puppets. Check tonight's show notes for links to all of our guests and consider getting involved if something grabs your attention. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting KRCL. It is Listener's Community Radio of Utah. We couldn't do it without you. I'm Laura Jones, and this has been Radioactive. Going to go out with a little Hank Williams, just because he mentioned Salt Lake in it. This is California Zephyr on KRCL. From the great salt lakes of Utah to California's golden shore, Colorado and Nevada, through the desert's burning door. While she's circling through the canyons, can't you see that mountain stream? It's the California Zephyr, the Union Pacific Queen. See her rocking, see her rolling. As she rambles on her way She left L.A. this morning Burning up the right away In the distance hear her moaning Hear her lonesome whistle scream It's the California Zephyr The Union Pacific Queen She leaves the city of the angels Heading for old Santa Fe She's a-making not she's making time Just watch her swing and sway And from way out in the darkness See that headlight gleam It's the California Zephyr The Union Pacific Queen From the great salt lakes of Utah to California's golden shore, Colorado and Nevada, through the desert's burning door. While she's circling through the canyons, can't you see that mountain stream? It's the California Zephyr, the Union Pacific Queen.